Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. We're going to switch into our, our sermon. We're in our last sermon in our series in the book of Titus. I don't know whether to cheer for that or not, if that means you're glad it's done, or so let's just keep going. Um, our theme for the series has been believing for the long haul. We said a lot of people will approach faith kind of like a road trip, right? And it's like a weekend road trip. You have a fun experience. It's an emotional high of sorts. You get a cool memory or two, like discovering those coffee-flavored M&Ms in that gas station in West Virginia. Oh, my goodness, they're life-changing, you know, things like that. And then, then what happens, you get done with the road trip, you return back to everyday life. And what we've said is that people tend to treat their faith kind of like that, where you have an emotional experience that lasts for a moment or two, but then you return to everyday life. Maybe your spiritual road trip was a Christian summer camp. Maybe it was a kid's week. Um, there's a guy, uh, a comedian, John Christ. I know many of you have, have seen his stuff on YouTube. He did a bit about Kids Week where he was talking about how all Kids Week is is we just take normal activities and put Christian labels on them, right? And he said, instead of, we're gonna play Simon Says? Nope, this is Jesus Says, right? Or he said, you wanna play Foursquare? Not a Kids, kids Week. Nope, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you square, right? That's, that's all, we, all we do. But listen, those things are really good, right? I, I know for me, I went to, a, I grew up going to a church and so, we did a lot of summer camps, a lot of kids' weeks, and it was at a summer camp where I ended up understanding the gospel for the first time at 15 years old, and it was a big moment. There was like this mediocre guitarist playing 15 verses of Just As I Am, and when he got done with it, it was like, hey, you need to come down. It's like, man, I, you're right. I need to believe the gospel. Really good moment for me. But then I got back into everyday life, and what I didn't know how to do, and what no one showed me how to do, is how do you take the faith of a momentary spiritual experience and translate it into something that changes everyday life? And that's something that a lot of people did with. Maybe for you, it was a, a kid's week, right? Uh, the, but what happens is the kid's week comes to an end, right? Miss Gloria, the, the penny wars are over. Miss Gloria has been pied in the face, and, and now it's done, right? And now we're back into everyday life, and there's so many people like me that never knew how to transition their faith from a momentary experience into the everyday life. And this letter is God saying that your faith was meant to be way more than a road trip, we got to think of our faith more like a permanent move where you load up the truck, you wave goodbye to the old life, and you step into the new life. And this letter is all about believing for the long haul, a belief that, yes, it enjoys the emotional experiences, those big moments, yes, it enjoys it, but then it has the power to get down into the everyday and radically change your life forever, a belief that becomes your new home. See, long-haul faith is the kind of faith where your friends start to say, She's just, she's just a different person now, and she continues to be this different person. I don't know what happened in that moment, but she's a different person, and that's continued for some time now. It's the boss that says, gosh, this, he just seems like he's more concerned with other people now than he is himself. It's a whole new way that he's approaching his work. It's the spouse that says, her love for me or his love for me is just, 
I can sense it. I actually see it in action now, and I never did before. It forever changes you in visible, tangible ways. Here's how we summarize this faith, this long-haul faith in week one. Week one, we said believing for the long haul means that your eternal destination, where you're going, it sets your present course of action. Your eternal destination, where you're going, sets your present course of action. And all of Paul's letter is saying the great hope of the Christian message is the answer to the ultimate long-haul question. What happens to you when you die? We all ask that question. We all live by whatever answer we have to that question. That, the, the way we answer that question shapes our lives. It does. If you believe that nothing happens when you die, well, then you believe you've got to live for the moment. Death is something to be feared because you've got to live in this moment and do everything you can, have all the experiences you can have. But of course, those experiences never satisfy you for the long run, always leaves you empty and sad. If, on the other hand, you operate by a belief that says, yeah, I do believe there's some heaven-like afterlife that everybody gets to go to because, after all, God is love, so everybody gets to go to heaven. Well, then you've got a huge problem. Y'all didn't know we were going to go deep into apologetics this quick in the sermon, but here we are, right? This is matters. If you believe, you know, that everybody winds up in heaven, well, then you got the moral problem here on earth. Well, then it doesn't matter what I do. It's often called the Hitler problem. Any heaven that Hitler gets into seems kind of bogus. It's like, well, no, the really bad people don't get into heaven. Well, then you got a whole other problem of who sets the standard of how good or how bad you have to be. And you find yourself trying to figure out how to live in that way. Christianity, on the other hand, puts everyone on equal footing. And for Christians, our eternal destination is a heaven, and the only way we get there, we're going to read a whole lot about that today in Titus chapter 3, is by the grace of God, an eternity in the presence of God and a joyful relationship with God. So chapter 1 said, I'm accepting what God has done for me, and I'm accepting an identity as a citizen of heaven. I'm going to live now as a part of that kingdom while I'm here on earth, which means I have a perspective on these momentary things that other people around me crave. They wish they had that perspective on their life. They crave it, but they can't find it. It means things that I thought really mattered start to lose their grip over me. Even death looks differently to me now. Because death used to look like a coffin that I feared, and now it looks like a door that I'm going to be carried through at the end of my days. It's a very different thing in this perspective. Chapter one was how my future shapes my present. Now, chapter three that we're in today looks back at the act of Jesus and shows how that act informs my present, how the past act of Jesus informs present actions, which brings, this is what's so cool, it brings the perspective of Christianity in just three short chapters in Titus into full perspective. The way Christians often say this, there's sometimes you get around church too long, you pick up all these phrases that don't make sense, except in kind of like, it's just a subculture kind of thing, but one of the phrases we use that I think makes a lot of sense, it says that as a Christian, I'm living in the already, but not yet. We'll say that a lot, because what we mean is, I'm looking back on what Christ has done for me. I have already been redeemed by his blood, by his act of forgiveness, but I'm not yet where I'm going to be one day. And so I'm living here in the in-between. Here's the thing. This act has freed me, and this destination says, everything's going to be good for me. And here I am living in the present, celebrating really both of those, our common past as a church as Christians and our common future gives us a common purpose here in our present age. Now, here's the thing with today's passage. I'm not going to tell you the common purpose right now. Normally, I would. I'd be like, okay, and here's the big idea for today as we walk through the passage. But I decided we needed to do a little Bible drill today, all right? Teach you how to learn the Bible a little bit, how to read through it, get meaning out of it. So we're going to walk through Titus chapter 3. 
and see if you can identify our common purpose, what the big idea is of the day. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how that purpose plays out in your private life where no one else is looking, in your home, at your work, and in the greater public arena. All right? That's where we're going. Titus 3, we're just going to walk through the passage, try and identify that big idea, and then look at how that big idea plays out in the four different arenas of life, and then we'll be done. All right. Verse 1. Here we go. Paul is picking up, obviously, from chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, this is the Apostle Paul talking to Titus, the young church planter. Remind them, the Christians, to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. All right, now, you got to remember one of the big confrontational things in this letter is that the Christian message says part of believing for the long haul is going to be surrendering some of the authority that you have over your life and that I have over my life. You are no longer in charge. God is. Now, that's a deeply offensive message, but it's, it's what he says over and over. And in fact, God puts people here on earth to oversee you. And so you're not just responsible and under submission to God. He puts people here on earth. Chapter one, he puts elders in the church. Chapter two, he puts older men and women who to serve as kind of a spiritual parent over you. And then right here at the start of chapter three, he's reflecting on those and adding in, you're to submit to the laws of the land. Now, I'm not going to spend enough time on this, I know, but let's just say this. God calls us as Christians to peaceful submission to rulers and authorities, except where those rulers and authorities call us to an action that would be in defiance of God's law. In those instances, we maintain respect for those in authority while refusing to comply with any action that would cause us to disobey God. So a great example of that in action would be the civil rights marches and sit-ins. That would be a great, just one example. There are plenty more we could go through. But look what he says we're to be ready for at the end of the verse. Can we get that verse back up there? Lisa, I'm going I'm to do that a lot today. Sorry, guys. Um, he says, to be ready for every good work. The Christian is to be on the ready, on alert. Think of like, a, I don't know, like a doctor on call, ready at a moment's notice for these good works. Verse 2, to slander no one to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Two things not to do, two things to do. I want you to notice what's underneath these because this actually sets up everything for today. The two things not to do, the slandering and avoiding fighting, they are responses, catch this, of a person who is trying to preserve themselves by tearing down someone else. Either behind their backs tearing down someone through slander or right there to their face, tearing down someone through fighting. These are where we drift when we are concerned, first and foremost, with ourselves. And he says, don't be concerned with self, but instead be kind and gentle. Be concerned with others. That's the thesis. That's the, the big core of everything today, that you were never meant to live a life of self-increase. Because when you live a life of self-increase, ultimately it's going to end in emptiness. But instead, you're to give yourself for the increased of others, as upside down as it seems, it's actually where fulfillment is. The way up is down in the Christian life. Verse three, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice. Listen to this. This is the story of every Christian, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. See, Paul's saying we too. This was us. We were once this way, but now, by saying we were once He's about to say, but now, right? He's about to do something else. He's saying there's a, a separation for Christians from where they were. We once lived concerned 
with self-fulfillment, self-actualization, if you will. We were told, hey, you do you, right? That's our culture. Be your own self. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do. Don't submit to anybody else's version of you. You be you, you get yours. And we are told that that's true freedom. But living for yourself is actually a form of bondage to a pretty brutal master, you. It's a brutal master. And your desire to make something of yourself leads you to malice, envy, hatred, detestment of others. Or it leads you in depression because you feel like you don't measure up and you're tired of trying. See, all of these descriptions are descriptions of what? Malice, envy. These are things that you feel when you're interacting with someone else. And that's because you see yourself in competition to them and you want to rise to the top. Right here. This is why the TV show Survivor is in its 36th season. I Googled it. 36 seasons. Two a year, 18 years. Why? You know, it was originally just to be a summer replacement show. That's all it was supposed to be. But instead, it changed television forever. And now we have The Bachelor. That was Survivor's fault, right? Like all this, you know, all this stuff. Why? Because in that show Survivor, we're seeing only a slightly exaggerated version of our own lives. You realize that? We follow, when we follow our culture's commands to be about self-fulfillment, deep down in our hearts, we don't have friends, we have alliances. Like, I just need that person to help me get where, where I want to go. And we have plenty of enemies, and we watch Survivor, and we're looking at the screen, we're like, no, no, don't trust her. She's saying nice things now, but she is going to stab you in the back, right? You can't trust her. And you have that same exact conversation about people in your life. Now, you may never have it audibly, but you have it in your heart, and you, you think, man, I hope they don't vote me off friend group island or whatever it is that you're in, right? And living in that fear and insecurity, Paul says it's foolish. It's deceiving you. That isn't true life. Instead, right? So verse three finishes with, or the whole thing is, we were once, and verse four is gonna start with, but something else happened. That's not true life. Now listen, if you're new to Christianity, you gotta get ready for this. Because in these verses I'm about to unpack come the, I mean, it's some of the most beautiful articulation of the Christian message anywhere in Scripture. And we tend to get excited right here. It's the core of what we believe. I think you're going to find it speaks to you. Listen to verse 4. I'm going to do verse 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he, I'm going to come back to that while that pronoun is so important, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, we were trapped in self-fulfillment and we couldn't escape that pursuit. We just kept looking at it, just trapped by our own desires. Um, it's kind of like the mirror of Erised. Any Harry Potter nerds in the house? Know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. There's, this is one of those illustrations that is for five people, okay? The rest of y'all can like it. Now, the mirror of Erised was, it's just the word desire backwards, right? And so it's sitting there, and what Dumbledore says about it, and you just got to understand, was that many men, he tells Harry, he said, many men have wasted away looking at it. Why? Because it doesn't just show you you, it shows you your desires. And so people would sit in front of this mirror forever and just waste away. It's a picture of mankind longing for what he doesn't have, but thinks that it will give him comfort when he gets it. We can't save ourselves from that. We can't save ourselves from ourselves because our desires are all out of whack. But when the kindness and love of God appeared, and that, we'll go back to verse four and five. When the kindness and love of God appeared, 
all right? Love for mankind appeared. He, the pronoun, right? Kindness and love, which are adjectives describing God, all of a sudden switched to a person. He appeared. He saved us. We didn't earn our freedom. We were wasting away thinking about ourselves, but he looked at us sitting there, and he loved us. Listen to me. God loves you. God loves you. And he, lo- he doesn't love you because you're good enough to be loved. He loves you while you are sitting, wasting away, concerned with yourself, a total wreck. He loves you because he loves you. That's one of the first things you have to understand about the Christian message. He loves you because he loves you. Two things happened in what we call salvation. The beauty of this moment here in this passage we're going through is that we get to kind of open up this word saved, which is another one of those Christian-y words, but it's salvation. It's what he calls it. We get to open this thing up and look at, look at it kind of in all its glory because he uses a couple of words to describe it. It's like you know, opening up a summer watermelon. I don't know, be like, oh, this is the best. I don't know, but here it is. We're gonna go in, all right? Two things. In salvation, listen, when God saves you, he makes you a new person. The washing of regeneration, y'all, that's a sermon all to itself. In short, the washing refers to God taking your criminal record. He takes it. And then he pours Christ's blood over it, which is an odd image, but then he says, he scrubs it down And that blood is actually a cleansing agent. And he washes your record completely clean. He washes it clean, which it means you don't have to live in the torment of your past sins. You found forgiveness. You can no longer be condemned for the things that you've done. You're free. And then he says, washing of regeneration. This is the only time in the New Testament the word regeneration is used to talk about our individual salvation. And it means your your record isn't just clean, you're made into a new person. The old you still exists physically, but you are, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, you are born again, which means you're now free from you. Those voices in your head telling you you're not worthy to be loved or that tell you that you need others to like you, or that you're always gonna feel depressed, or that you just gotta escape to that bottle, or to that screen, or to that other person that's not your spouse. The new you doesn't buy that, because you've been changed, which means you have new ears. God makes you a new person. You got new ears to listen to a new voice, but some of y'all are still listening with old ears. You gotta get rid of them. Here's the next thing God does. When he saves you, he doesn't just make you a new person, He gives you a new spirit. See, God is making you a new person because God's coming to take up residence in you. And if he's coming in, he said, I got to get all this other stuff out because I'm coming in to live here. And when he moves in, he cleans house. So catch this, Christian. According to John 14, the very instant you take that step of belief, which is a big, scary step, I know, to resolve in your heart and mind that Christ died for your sins, you believe he's your savior, that moment of surrender, God makes you a new person And then he takes up residence with you. God is now with you. And he stays with you. So you now have not just a new spirit, but the spirit of God. And he's constantly renewing you. Constantly renewing you. Renewing your desires from old desires. Your mind away from those old voices. Showing you what is going to be good. And changing your desires from things that used to harm you. Now listen. 
How many in here, when I say you are a messed up, lost person, but through Christ, God has made you a new person, changed everything in you, and it was good. How many of you experienced that? You raise your hands, you clap your hands, you do something with your hands to thank the Lord for what he's done. And if that's not you, listen, that's, as you, that's the testimony of the church, because that's what we do together, is testify that we were once. We were and not because of anything we've done, Paul makes an explicit point to say that. But because he loved us, he rescued us. Which means you don't have to clean yourself up before you receive the love of God. It's there for you. It's there for you. Verse 6. We're not done. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7. Look at this. So that having been justified, looking back, by his grace... We may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. His spirit is on us. He was not stingy with that spirit. He was generous and now justified, finally justified, made righteous, not because we deserve it. We were sinners, but by his grace, in an instant, God levels the playing field. All humanity becomes equal, equally sinful. All humanity has one way to be restored to God, to be set free from bondage, and that's his grace. And I'm not done yet. His promises keep coming like a waterfall. We're, we're heirs. We aren't just freed people. We are sons and daughters legally now guaranteed eternal life one day. So that believer that you love that passed away, he is not, she is not in a coffin. They are with Christ in eternity. And in a world of bad news and fake news, this is good news and true news that the church celebrates. Celebrated church. This is our hope. And Paul's like, we got to sit in this. you got to grab hold of this. Because here's what's coming in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. It's trustworthy, Titus. It's tr- trustworthy, young pastor. And I want you to insist on these things. you got to insist on them so that those who have believed might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Because these are good and profitable to everyone. Y'all, there's only a handful of times where Paul doubles, actually kind of almost like triple downs in this thing. He says the gospel's trustworthy. The gospel, you can trust it, this good news. And he says you gotta insist on it, why? We are so prone to forget the gospel and drift back into our old selves. Martin Luther was once asked by a, um, this old German monk, a guy, guy walks up to him and says, man, why do you preach the same gospel every week? And he looked right back and he said, because you keep forgetting it every week. So I gotta keep telling it to you. We are so prone in our hearts to drift back into our old selves. And even though we believed this gospel message, we find ourselves again seeking approval from other people and in other things. And so Paul says, insist on it. Never stop teaching it. Keep teaching it. And some of you today, you got to lean back into it. And he says, insist so that the believers will be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Because good works are profitable for everyone. Instead of fighting, in fact, that's verse 9, avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they're unprofitable and worthless. This is the second time he's rebuking this. Same thing he rebuked in the opening chapter because there are people in their midst that were stirring up disunity about what it meant to believe the gospel. They kept adding things to belief in the gospel. There were people largely with religious backgrounds, and they were trying to add to the gospel by saying you need Jesus and you need to follow these dietary laws. And people were saying, coming back, these new Christians who were Gentiles were like, I can't be a part of that. Today, this would be something like you need Jesus and you need to believe a certain political platform in order to be a Christian. Or you need, a, you need Jesus, but you also need a certain way that you view alcohol. 
Or you need Jesus and you ever heard a church arguing about worship styles? I know. Let me put it this way. When we focus on ourselves, preferences become priorities. When we focus on others, their needs outweigh our preferences. When we focus on ourselves, our preferences that should be preferences become priorities because we're seeking to exalt self. When we focus on others, their needs outweigh our preferences. So Paul says to Titus, make sure they're doing what Christ did. Instead of focusing on himself, the Bible makes a big point to say he disregarded himself to do a good work for us, bringing us salvation. So Paul finishes. I'm going to give you the second to last verse in this letter because he's reinforcing it between 9 and 14. So here's 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So now you're ready for today's big idea. Three times in the closing chapter, Paul has said our people, God's people, are to be devoted to one activity, not fighting But instead, they are to devote themselves altogether, everybody, to? Yeah, to good works. Sometimes people feel like the Bible is hard to read. Look, if you're new to the Bible, jump into Titus, jump into like Philippians or something like that. You're going to find it's much more readable and easy to understand than you think. Um, Listen, if good works is our action step, then the big giant question is, okay, what's a good work, right? What qualifies as a good work? If I help a little old lady across the street, does that count? Because the problem is, I have never been in that situation in my life. Now, I guess I could go up to like trade and try on and wait on a little old lady. Most likely, she's going to be zooming by one of those scooters and I'm going to have to jump out of the way, right? But I, I guess I could do that. So what, what is an actual good work? What's an actual example? Here, let, me, let me say it this way. I'm going to give a, a definition, give some of the ways it works out. A good work is a demonstration of Christ's love. That's a good work. If this is what we're to be devoted to, this is what it is, a demonstration of Christ's love. The motivation for our action is the gospel. I've spent all that time in this sermon on the gospel because that's our motivation, not so that God will love us a little bit more. It is in light of what he did and what that means for where I'm going, I'm now living as a citizen of that kingdom now who's been redeemed not because of my good works, but because of what he did. So now I'm living and good works is just my demonstration of that love sending me to that place. All right, so here we go. Here's what this means practically, okay? Practically, it means a good work is helpful. I'm gonna give you just a couple of like putting this in action. I hear this from our ministry partners in Charlotte all the time. Sometimes churches will call them and they'll say, if this is what the, the ministry partner will say to me, say, man, I had a church call me the other day and say, hey, here's what we want to do when we come to volunteer with you. Now, I want to give big props to you guys, especially Miss Jill, who leads our local outreach team, because she always calls and it says, how can we help? How can we help? And deeper than that, we need to recognize all people have stories and we'd be far better at good works once we sought to be active learners of people's stories and circumstances. Otherwise, what you think might be helpful might actually be harmful. There's an important book in this area called When Helping Hurts, if you want to um, really get like more into this, When Helping Hurts. Um, it, basically, the idea is it talks a lot about first worlders, that's you and I, and it says sometimes we can think that the good work we're bringing to a community in a third world actually does more harm than good. Uh, an example of this will be a, sort of a t- company tagline that says for every pair of our shoes you buy, our organization is going to provide a pair of shoes to a, a, for free to every person in that village. Sounds nice, makes a good commercial, but it puts the local shoemaker out of business in the village and makes the village permanently dependent on outside resources. That's not help. 
That's hurting. Why not instead build small businesses there in that village? Just one example. Listen, maybe the big takeaway here is good works know and meet real actual needs. But another thing, a good work is self-sacrificing. Jesus sacrificed himself for us, so we sacrifice ourselves for others. The reason I say this, this might seem like so obvious, but sometimes, usually not intentionally, we let our calendar determine whether or not we will obey God. Like I would stop. I'd stop and help that person pulled over on the side of the road, but I gotta be somewhere. I would go tutor that kid, but I've got hot yoga. I have no idea what hot yoga is. I've just heard it a couple times. I don't even wanna, you know. Um, Listen, but I do feel this. I've got four kids, so anytime we say, hey, we're gonna let them do one activity, all of a sudden that multiplies into four, and before we know it, at the end of the night, Courtney and I are like falling on the couch going, what just happened, right? And And our day is done. Listen, good works will never be convenient. It will require sacrifice. So if you have the opportunity to display the selfless love of Christ to someone, and then you take that opportunity and you measure it against some sort of self-serving activity that you could do, and you say, hmm, which would I rather do? Self will always win. Netflix will always win. But if you're going to obey Jesus, self has to die. That's just, that's what he did for us. And that's what we do. It will always be less convenient to serve others. Here's the last one. A good work is God-honoring. Not every good work needs to come, listen, with a Bible verse slapped on it, okay? But every good work does need to be in line with God's commands. That's because he alone is truly good, and his design alone is what is good for human flourishing. So true good works will never conflict with God's commands for your life. Uh, In college, I had a buddy who asked me to drive him down to South Campus, and so I was like, yeah, sure, man, that's no big deal. What an easy, I guess, good work, right? It was helpful. It was self-sacrificing, taking my time, my car. We go down and everything. So we go down. He said, hey, park right here, man. And he jumps out of the car and runs behind a dumpster and then comes back about 30 seconds later, shuffling his hands in his pocket, hops back in the car and says, let's go. Like, things, yeah, uh-oh, things just got real shady, right, in my car. And I'm like, um, it took very little deductive reasoning to realize my friend was a rookie drug dealer, Right? And once I figured it out, his response was not, uh-oh. He goes, yeah, man, you think you can give me a ride to this spot, this spot, and this spot about once every two weeks? No, <laughs> right? Nah, bro. Would have been a good work helping and everything else, but totally not God-honoring. So I want to say to you, be gracious with yourself in gray areas, but God never calls you to a good work that would jeopardize your character. Good works demonstrate Christ's love, and that makes the church God's demonstration community. And that's why the most effective ministry happens outside the walls of the churches and spaces where a Christian is demonstrating the love of Christ to someone else. So let me take the last couple of minutes and show you how the gospel motivates good works in the four main areas of your life. I told you, personally, in your home, professionally, like in your workspace, and then in our general community at large. The first one, listen, you become, when you dwell in the gospel, as Paul did for so many verses, you become more worshipfully obedient to God in your private life. I know that's a little bit wordy, and I wish it could be a tighter phrase, but it's all important. You become more worshipfully obedient, right? Because your obedience is a response to what God has done, right? You don't become dutifully obedient, but worshipfully. Just looking back, you become more obedient. See, the more you dwell on the gospel, the more you become aware of your own sinful desires. Think back to verse 3. We were once enslaved to those, but not anymore. I know for me, perhaps one of the greatest things God did in my life was set me free from the sort of two-faced way I used to live. I told you I grew up in church, so it was easy to put on the church face, 
and then to have a totally different life in private. See, that new spirit in you, when you allow it, actually makes you more worshipful in private than it even will in public because you're concerned primarily now with an audience of one, not with the audience of many. And so then the closer people get to that private space, the more of God they start to see through you. Here's the second one. You're able to be a more selfless family member when you're resting in the gospel. Can we just be honest? Nobody knows us like family, right? And I'm gonna include roommates in this. Like the people you live with, no, they see you at your rawest. And when you start to abide in Christ and the spirit of God starts to change you, they're gonna be the first ones to notice. And those good works will come out and you having a more selfless spirit towards them. You'll demonstrate Christ's love to your kids when you put your phone down and go play soccer in the backyard instead. You'll demonstrate Christ's love when you do the dishes, even though that's not your job, and you don't hold it over that person forever because you did the dishes, even though it's not your job. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. This has practical applications. I've been telling y'all this. It comes out when you offer forgiveness instead of vengeance. It comes out when you offer repentance instead of excuses. The goodness and loving kindness of God becomes your goodness and your loving kindness towards others. Here's a third way. Your work changes from an occupation to a calling. Now, I'm not talking about slapping Christian things up around the office or you're going to start a new coffee shop, call it Hebrews, because you're trying to get that in there somehow, right? I'm talking about the deep work of allowing the gospel to change your motivations for work and even what you label as success. So questions like what will make me the most money and give me the most status get replaced with how? With my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of the greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and human need? How can that good go to work in my space? If the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, our work inevitably becomes less about the work and more about us. Our, our aggressiveness, which gets celebrated, will eventually become abuse. Our drive will become burnout. Our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing. But if instead the purpose of our work is to actually exalt something beyond ourselves, then we have a better reason to deploy our talent, ambition, our entrepreneurial vigor, if you will. And we're more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world standards. What if work was meant to be your greatest space for good works? What if the love of work could be replaced by love at work? People think real ministry is for pastors. Y'all, that's crazy. I told you, my job is to equip you for ministry. You have the platform at whatever level you are in your work to, ser to serve others. Some of you, really, you're at the level where you can dream on behalf of your organization about your bottom line. And my question is, how is that bottom line serving others more than yourself? Here's the last one. When we rest in the gospel as a church, we become God's demonstration community to a watching world. A few months ago, I preached a sermon on Jesus's command for his followers to be salt to the world around them. And he says salt does a couple things. It brings out flavor and it also preserves. And Jesus says salt's only good when it's salty, right? It's only good when it's different from the, the meat that it's preserving, the meat that it's bringing out the flavor in. When Christians who live in a world of self-fulfillment Right? When we choose to be self-sacrificing, it sets us apart and creates a reason for the world to kind of peer in and wonder what's going on. You know, there was a um, school shooting in an Amish community in Pennsylvania in 2006, and five schoolgirls, I think it was like middle school girls, were killed, and then the shooter took his own life. 
Now, within hours of that, hours of that moment, the Amish community gathered around the parents of the shooter and around the wife and kids of the shooter and said, we want to walk with you through this. Now, of course, people immediately responded as it came out in the news and everything. How could they forgive? And then shortly after that, the news kind of spins the story and says, you know what? This is America at its best. This is America at its best, forgiving and saying we're better together. Well, a couple of years later, there were three sociologists who wrote a book called Amish Grace, reflecting on this event. And they said, they actually brought up this whole, this is America at its best, and said, no, no, this isn't America at its best. America preaches a consumerist message of me. And that act of that community gathering around them was selfless. It was not vengeance, but instead forgiveness. And these sociologists said, That's just, America just doesn't have that. In fact, the reason they were able to do this, the sociologist said, was partly because of the lives they lived were a little bit detached from a lot of American culture. They were able to say, because of the selfless act of Jesus on my behalf, I'm able to now live for God and love my neighbor because I have everything I need. See, road trip faith will never get you to that moment. Road trip faith will burn out in the face of crushing circumstances like that when they come. Only long-haul faith will get you there. There's a, uh, a woman named Kay Warren, a Christian author, wife of a megachurch pastor in California. She went through the horrible loss of her son, they did, um, who committed suicide a few years ago. Out of nowhere, um, a couple days ago, she tweeted out online um, and summed up, I feel like, what we've been getting at with this whole letter. And here's what she said. She said, someone recently asked how I survived my son's suicide. And I told this guy, I've spent... I've sent my spiritual roots deep into the character of God for more than 50 years. Circumstances tried to brutally rip out the tree of my faith, but the roots held. That's long-haul faith. Sending your roots deeper into God's love every day. Y'all, we're all sending our roots somewhere. We're all invest, believing something about the long haul that's driving how we live today. And I implore you, send those roots deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can ever satisfy you. Let me close this in prayer. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I wanna give you a chance to respond. We've been in this series now for several weeks. And at the heart of it is what you heard today. God loves you. Not because you are worthy to be loved, you are worse off than you even realize, but he loves you. But today, what you're hearing is that love went into action, and he rescued you from your sin. And you can receive that today. Christian, oh, I want you to just, if you even take the baggage of whatever you came in here with this morning, or whatever you had this week, and I want you to look back at the cross, what he's already done for you. I want you to look forward to where you're going, eternity with him in paradise. And I want you to give him that baggage, knowing that he can hold it. He can take it. He has set you free, and you have everything you need in him. And I want you to worship him in your own heart, in your own mind. Thank you, God. Thank you. I need to remember the gospel today. And if you're not a Christian, these promises of already and not yet, they're not yours yet, but they can be today. 
as you've heard, you don't have to clean yourself up. There's no more going and getting right with God. No, no, that happened. Jesus got right with God for you. All you have to do is respond. Yes, I believe. I believe I was worse off than I realized. I can't save myself. My only hope is in what Christ did for me, and I received that today. And you can be set free from that sin, from that bondage. Finally, whatever that burden is you're carrying, you can be free today and have new life in Christ.